time has come to retool our playing for ourselves, for our students, and for the greater groove. And the big question remains, of course, what is the future of strings? Come on, let's talk about it. Hey, it's Tracy Silverman. And this is the For the Greater Groove, the Future of Strings podcast. Thanks for listening. This is where we talk about progressive strings and the future of string playing and exactly how we are going to build that future. And I've got somebody on the show today, Jared Judge, who is out there building the future for string players. He's got his own podcast called the Gigging Musician Podcast, giving all kinds of great advice and wisdom to so many musicians out there, not just string players, musicians of all kinds who are out there working and making livings as musicians. He's also uh, got Dream City Music, which is his uh, ensemble in the Milwaukee area. Uh, even more far-reaching, his book live.com, which is uh, how he teaches people how to be a gigging musician and provides them with software through booklive.com that really helps them put it all together with calendars. And you know what? I think um, Jared's going to explain this way better than I will. So welcome to the show, Jared. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tracy. Yeah, man. And I have to say, you know, um, your Gigging Musician podcast is a wonderful, um, wonderful listen. It's got great guests. Uh, <laughs> That's right. We just had you on our podcast. Amazing interview. Uh, thank you. I was honored to be a part of it. And uh, as I was um, preparing for, I was listening to some of the uh, some of your episodes and thinking, man, I got to and did send the link to my daughter, who's up in the Chicago area and is a gigging musician. And uh, there's just so much stuff there that she can learn and so many great stories um, that people are telling on your podcast. So it's great to have you here and bring some of that wisdom to our string playing, gigging string players out there. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. So um, if you had one piece of advice, one piece of advice for gigging musicians out there, what's, what is the, the one big wisdom that you try to, the takeaway that... Yeah, uh, the biggest takeaway that I ever got about my music career, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the, the takeaway first, and then I'll tell you the story of how I learned it. <laughs> so it was a quote, and it was told to me not by my music teachers, but by a business professor. And I didn't major in business, but they told me, treat your music career as a live music business. And so I learned that to me, that is the advice that changed everything for me because I learned that at a critical point when I was about to graduate from grad school for orchestra conducting. And mm -hmm. it was a point, you know, at the end of your, your uh, music schooling, per se, they tell you take auditions, apply for festivals, do all right. these things. Right. And, and I was doing those things. And I kept getting rejected over and over again, which mm -hmm. I think all of us have gone through rejection and that's why we're still here is because we have our, our skin yep. is hardened by them but for me it was kind of like I need to win one of these auditions or else the next thing for me is 
working at Cheesecake Factory, to take a line from what you said. <laughs> yeah. And so when I got back from an Air Force Band audition, I auditioned to be their conductor, and I got to actually conduct them, which was incredible, like one of the best ensembles I ever got to stand in front of. Mm -hmm. And the commander of the band pulled me into his office, asked me to shut the door, and said, that was a great audition, but you're just not experienced enough. I can't offer you this job right now. So yeah. I flew back to Milwaukee and asked my music professors, hey, what do I do? I graduate in a couple months, and I got no job lined up. And they shrugged their shoulders and said, keep doing what you're doing. Maybe it'll work out for you. But that wasn't good enough for mm -hmm. me because I had student loan debts to pay. Yeah. And so uh, one thing they did tell me was, like, you might want to ask the business school for some career management advice. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, you know, it was, it was a non-answer, but, like, I actually took their advice, and I walked over to the, the business building in our college, and I just kind of showed up this nerdy musician with my viola case, because uh, I was doing more viola at the time than violin, and I said, hey, can anyone help me? <laughs> <laughs> luckily, somebody was able to, and that's when I got the advice, treat your music career as a live music business. And so mm -hmm. So what does that mean? What does that mean to think of it as a business and not as a playing career? I think, I mean, it means so many things, but essentially it meant that there are activities that I had to be doing outside of practicing and performing in order to provide me more opportunities to perform. Mm -hmm. And so I had to figure out what are those activities that are not practicing or performing that will get me more performing opportunities. Right. And to me, like the first thing that they taught me was this is marketing. Right. Which was scary to me because I didn't want to be a marketing major. Right. But ultimately, I learned from them. I took their advice, learned basic marketing. And before I even graduated, I had booked my very first own gig my own paying gig that I didn't have to rely on somebody else to right. give me or say yes to an audition to. Right. Mm -hmm. So generating your own work rather than um, trying to just be hired by other people was a, a big uh, part of how you um, started. Yeah, absolutely. Like, going. And I've, I've always been one to kind of create my own opportunities just because I feel like it's it's more safe to rely on yourself than rely on an audition yep. committee or yeah these people who they don't know you as well as you do they don't believe in you as much as you do yeah oh yeah well there are you know there are so many uh, reasons why we don't get hired for gigs uh, and many of them out of our control completely that it's, you know, it's one of the ways that you can regain some control over your life uh, is to provide your own work, frankly. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, one thing uh, interesting, you know, you, you say to treat it as a business. Uh, I recently read uh, a book by a guy named Ari Herstand. I don't know if you're familiar with Ari. He's got a, a blog called Ari's Take and with a, a lot of really good music business advice. And he's got this a book called, um, 
how to make it in the new music business. Mm -hmm. And there was one sentence in there that really changed my whole outlook, uh, even at this late stage of the game for me, because I just read this a couple years ago, which was plan on spending 50% of your time on business and not on your music. And it's like, if you're okay with that, it's like, you know what? You can make a living playing the music you want. You can create a fan base. You can get gigs. You can have a career doing what you love to do. But plan on spending 50% of your time at the business end of that in order to create that. Either take two days out of the week, you know, uh, one week and three days out of the week the next week, or, you know, half of your day each day is business, the second half of the day, or whatever, however you want to do it. But you, it's that commitment to the work, to doing the business part of the work, a lot of which is admin and, you know, not terribly creative. Yeah, for sure. And I, I have, you know, I listened to Ari's take and I've encountered him before. And yes, I do believe in that sentence, which it's a little overwhelming to think like we yep. went to school for music because yep. we love the payoff that playing music provides it's soul food but to then switch from right brain to left brain and and yep. realize it's there is all this admin work it it doesn't have to be daunting um that's the part that's scary is like people think oh i have to become a business major or become a business person to do this and then my music will lose its soul right but i don't think that has to be the case if you just kind of have to look at it from a different perspective this is the work that you're doing to play more and you can be creative in the business work of it too right plus a lot of it can be automated which is kind of why i created book live in the first place yeah Exactly. Exactly. If you go on it, I mean, you've, you're obviously going at, at that at a bigger scale than a lot of people will. Um, and to be able to automate stuff like that and your book live makes that easy for a lot of people at a smaller scale to be able to have that automation ability um, that they can just subscribe to and, and save, save themselves some time. Um, you know, one thing that that interests me is the psychological um, mindset uh, of of gigging musicians. And and if you found that there is anything there that helps people, uh, you know, what, what do you find among the more successful um, freelancers as opposed to others who are maybe struggling? Is there a certain kind of. Um, you know, acceptance of this idea of doing the work part of it. Um, you know, I, it, it occurred to me that, you know, back when I used to, I did a lot of freelancing in the New York area when I first got started, as we were speaking about on your podcast, uh, and, um, you know, used to do the hard work with those gigs of getting the gigs, of networking and following up and, and, um, you know, contracting those gigs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think I appreciated playing on them more, having yeah. done all that work, than the ones that were just handed to me and people said, hey, show up at 8 o'clock and 
you know, bring your violin and play, you know. <laughs> I think you're totally right there. Um, one of my biggest strategies of how I generate more work for myself and the people who rely on me for work is I do a lot of networking specifically with like event venues, like the ballrooms, the hotels, this, that, and the other. And I will do the hard work of first finding out where those places are. I've got lists, hundreds of venues in my city alone that mm -hmm. then I find the contact information. I reach out to the owners of these places. I introduce myself and then I say, can I come and take a tour of your venue? I don't even have a, a gig booked there, but I'd just love to meet you and every room has a different acoustic and I'd love to hear how yours sounds. Mm -hmm. And then I show up, I bring my instrument, I shake hands with the person, I essentially make a new friend with this person and they get to hear me play. Because you want to test the acoustics. <laughs> and you do play. I do want to test the acoustics for sure. But I but also, as a way to sort of audition. As a way to audition, yes. Got it. And Interesting. Yeah. I mean, every single time I do that, there's a connection that I build with this person. And they hear me play. And, and almost every time they say, your music is a perfect fit for the events that we host here. And then they recommend me to the corporate event planners who's having their Christmas parties next week, uh, next month, or the weddings that are happening. And that really, that really does result in them referring you. Oh yeah, um, there are some that give me at least two or three gigs a month. Um, there are some that I don't hear from for a while, but that's okay. But I build this genuine connection with them, and they refer me. And when I do play those gigs, eventually. It's like you said, there is a much, I don't know, they, those gigs mean more to me because I did the work and I built the connections. I feel more connected to the place I'm playing, the people that are involved in that wedding too or that, yeah. that gig. Mm -hmm. Cool. Now, as a string player yourself, um, you're primarily a, a violinist and a violist or which, which do you go by <laughs> primarily? You don't have to. You don't have to cop to being a violist. That's okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> put you on the spot of inside string jokes here. Um, but as a string player, uh, I'm really interested in, um, and I don't know what the scene is like in the Milwaukee area because it's it's different um, town to town when it comes to this stuff. But what percent of those gigs would you say are non-classical or at least favor a, a string player who can play outside the classical canon who maybe knows how to improvise a little bit or can read a chord chart does that come up much uh in in uh, the work that you do and um, what's your experience yeah so i would say actually a majority of my the work that i do is in the non-classical realm really yeah because when I first started Dream City Music, I wanted to emulate the Vitamin String Quartet, mm -hmm. which obviously they've got classical tradition to their playing, but the repertoire they play is very much modern um, and, right. and jazzy at times. And so I started to offer that in addition to the classical repertoire to the people that I work with. I say, hey, I can do your Bach, Beethoven, whatever, but I also can do Bruno Mars on the pop side. 
I can do some Frank Sinatra. I can do, uh, well, we even do like some hip hop every now and again. Um, and then I'll, we let, like I, I do primarily weddings and I let my couples kind of choose from our playlist, but also request songs that are not on our list. And more often than not, their requests are not in the classical world at all. So, right. So, yeah, I mean, these gigs do require some modern string playing techniques, and I do improvise when the jazz standards allow me to. Yeah, I mean, are there some string players that you hire for this stuff and others that you won't because you know they can't handle it? What do you look for in a string player to be able to handle a gig that has a lot of non-classical stuff on it? I mean, I would say the biggest thing that I audition for is rhythm um, because you got to hold the group together. Like every member of the ensemble is responsible for keeping time. Yeah. It's not, not just the bass player or the, the cello player. Right. And so by just having solid rhythm means even if somebody's improvising, you're still playing, you're still changing the chords at the same time and you'll always keep it together. Yeah. Keep it together, yeah. But then, so here is an interesting thing, is the concept of swinging is oftentimes foreign to classical string players. Mm -hmm. But I don't audition for swinging. I don't require people to know that before coming into my group because I do believe that it can be learned and taught. But you do have to make an effort to learn it. Right. And what about um, how many string players would you say that you work with read are comfortable reading a chord chart can you put a chord chart in front of a string player no um that's not something that my group does yeah, right i mean it's a skill that you have to learn and it's not taught in music school at least in the classical string playing world right are there places where you would see that as being useful if you had string players who could do what band members you know a, a jazz player can do and just put a chord chart in front of them and they'd know how to respond to that? Um, or is that just something because you don't have anybody who does that, you never are in situations where you need it? Yeah, we, we don't have anybody who does it and we're not in situations that need it. But I will say that that would be extremely useful. Like the more, the less that you need as a musician, like if you don't need all the notes written out and you don't need your right. solos written out, you can just improv them. The less you need, the more you can do. Um, kind of reminds me, like, the less you have to rely on others, the more reliable you are yourself. Yeah. And so I, I like to, like, I have a podcast episode about sight reading situations and how sight reading is one of the most valuable gigging skills that you have, in addition to rhythm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But just being able to show up and operate on as little information given to you as possible, but still be able to thrive, that is kind of what sets apart those who stay in this business for a long time versus those who exit this business. Yeah. Do you do a certain amount of corporate stuff as well? Or, I don't, you know, again, this, uh, the, the city that you're in is going to make a big difference with a lot of these, the type of, of work that's available. Yes and no. So, yeah, we do a bunch of corporate work and nonprofit work. I was thinking about this, like, right before we recorded this, because I don't want people listening to this and saying, 
this stuff only works for weddings. Like treating right. treating your music career as a business only works if you want to play weddings. That's exactly where I was going with this. Yeah, because that philosophy is simply not true. Treating your music career as a business means you figure out the exact things that you need to do in order to design your ideal music career. So say you want to make a music career off of corporate events, like you were saying, then instead of visiting wedding venues, you'd visit you know, events, uh, venues that corporate events happen at, right. and maybe even go into the corporations themselves and do make those connections there. Yeah. Um, yeah, because it, it doesn't just have to be weddings. That's just what I chose to do, and you can choose whatever right. you want. Are there agencies um, in a town the size of Milwaukee, um, curious, are, are there agents who string players can go to other, sort of like yourself, but maybe who are doing more of the corporate stuff? Yeah, there, there are contractors and agencies in Milwaukee. Milwaukee's like a small city, 600,000. Right. Um, but I, I think, you know, in any city, there will be a mix of agencies and contractors I I have played for some of them, and I have a good relationship with them too, and always trying to build that because you know you want to be a good player in your town, and you don't want to step on somebody else's territory. Right. But at the same time, I am a firm believer that you need to be responsible for your own music career, and to me, being exclusive to an agency means that you're putting the responsibility of your music career into the hands of that agency. Right. And yeah. no, it's giving a lot of control and control also, also money. Like they take a, a cut. I think the average here in Milwaukee is they take 20% of your gigs. And if you, like you said before, if you put 50% of your time on the business or even less, if you just focus on it at all, you will be doing the work that these agencies do and you'll get to keep more of that money. Yeah. Question for you. In terms of, uh, for freelancing musicians, um, you mentioned this idea of not stepping on people's toes, uh, meaning other contractors who are sort of doing what you do in terms of getting work and uh, that kind of thing. But if you're a freelancer uh, musician, how does that work in terms of of networking with other players uh, and the, the territoriality that comes with all of that. Um, you know, if you're new to town, how do you get work without, and you know, antagonizing the people who have been there? Do How do you become a good player, uh, not string player, but how do you become a good um, uh, part of the local scene where you're actually getting work for yourself without pissing off all the other people who are in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's a tough one. <laughs> it's a tricky one. Yeah. I don't know. Any I mean, advice? Um, I, I, the advice that I would give is, is what I try to do, is I try to give more than I take. So I've reached out to a lot of the contractors in my area to try to build a relationship with them. Some of them have been more open to my advances than others. But for example, there's one of the contractors in town that I reached out to introduce myself and I actually did her website for her. 
so um, I'm very tech savvy. And so she, she wasn't. She said, like, hey, do you ever build websites? I said, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. And thus, I'm advancing her business, which competes with my business. But to me, it's worth it because, like I said, I want to give more than I take. And, hey, if there's a gig that she can't do, she'll throw it my way. Right. Right. Um, for players, are there any do's and don'ts that you uh, that you tell folks? Like, if it's not your gig, don't approach the contractor directly, or don't uh, speak to the. If it's not your gig, don't say something to the producer in a studio. Do, you, do and speaking of, well, it's another question, but studio work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like you said, like if it's not your gig don't try to take advantage of that situation for your personal benefit. Right. Just kind of a across the board kind of good policy. Yeah, for sure. Don't undercut in your town. Like that's a huge thing that I think people, when you're not treating your music career as a business, you don't understand how to price your services high enough, but then build the value of what you do. So you think that the only thing that people look at is, is price. Right, race to the bottom. Exactly, like if you go to those directory websites, like we all know them, some of us are on them, but people are price shoppers there because musicians don't build up the value and stay firm to their high rates. Yes. So don't undercut, keep the prices high, and that supports all of us. Yeah, yeah. Um, what advice to young players who are who need to take those lower priced gigs like I did when I was first starting out and was, you know, happy to take whatever gig came came across? Is there a certain point where you, you know, kind of advise people, hey, it's time to to move out of that? <laughs> I say as fast as possible. <laughs> but you do need some pieces of evidence that you're worth that. Um, actually, so I, I mentioned to you earlier that I run Book Live Academy, which trains musicians on how to like treat their music career as a business and work more in the private events world too. But the first thing that we work on is evidence gathering to get testimonials of people that you've performed for, good video of your actual performances there, and then... Um, like logos or lists of venues that you've played at that are higher profile. And then you start to incorporate those pieces of proof everywhere, your website, your yep. bio. And all of a sudden, once you have that there, that means you don't have to take as many lower paying gigs. Yeah, that's a good strategy for moving beyond that. Do you guys ever work with uh, DJs? Because I know a lot of it's working against the idea of DJs, the whole title of your uh, business, Book Live, uh, is basically about that. And I know from, from looking at the site that, uh, you know, a big part of, of what you have to overcome as uh, in terms of the sales of, of work is how to talk people out of using DJs uh, and into using live music. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously, we, you know, uh, we don't have to explain to the listeners of either of our podcasts the value of live music as we're talking to musicians. But, um, 
kind of curious if you ever interface with DJs, if you end up having to do gigs where you're working together and how that works. Uh, do you play to tracks? Do you wing it? Uh, <laughs> how does that go? Yeah. So there's a lot to your question. <laughs> um, I actually was a wedding DJ for a couple years. Oh, okay. And I did that because... When I first launched Dream City Music, you know, the first gigs I got were just me playing solo violin. But then it started to build up because I got that piece of evidence. I say, okay, I'm going to offer something more high value. But then as we started to get more of a reputation, people would hire our string quartet and then they would say, hey, we also are looking for a DJ. Do you know any? And I said, not yet, but I, if you're comfortable with like, I will charge you a very low price if you let me DJ your wedding. And so I would actually play the ceremony, kind of like you told me on, on our yeah. podcast. I would play the ceremony. I would play the cocktail hour. Or actually, I'd just pair it down to a trio, and I would set up the DJ part for the reception. And then I would DJ their wedding for the rest of the night. And it was exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> um, it also wasn't my forte. I didn't enjoy doing it. Yeah. And so that's I stopped doing that pretty soon after I started but we do work with a lot of DJs like in a way yes we're competing with DJs but we also work with them like the DJs that um, they might do the sound for the wedding ceremony while we're playing the the live music and they'll they'll mic us up and they the DJs say the weddings where they have a string quartet for the ceremony are so much better than the ones where they don't and so they actually love it because it takes a little bit of responsibility off their plate and it makes them look and sound better, too. Sure. Sure. Cool. All right. And it has come to that point in the interview that I must ask Jared Judge, host of the Gigging Musician podcast. Are you ready to play Not My Gig? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Okay. This is, you know, this is the part of the show where I try to embarrass my guests. So, so. Jared Judge, owner of Dream City Music. We're going to find out how much you know about dreams. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> so get two out of three right and you win. Awesome. That's about it. Okay, so here's your first question about dreams. According to neurophysiologists, about how much does the average person actually dream every night? Oh, a, man. Oh, go ahead. Two hours. B, one hour. C, 20 minutes. I'm going to guess A, 20 minutes. Or no, C, 20 minutes. Well, <laughs> See, I'm already embarrassing myself. <laughs> I, I'm going to give it to, I'm going to go with your first instinct A, two hours. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> because it is actually two hours. Wow. My dreams always feel so short. Yeah, they say most dreams are like five to ten minutes long, but evidently over the course of a night we will dream about two hours. That's crazy. All right, you got one right. I'm I'm doing quote air quotes. All right, your second question in the Cranberry song "Dreams." If you can try to hear I'm it, trying to hear head. it. Yep. <laughs> After the line and oh my dreams. What is the next line? Is it A, and all my hopes and schemes, 
Or is it B, and all my forgotten schemes? Or is it C, it's never quite as it seems? Let's go with C on this one. You are right. Yeah. Never quite as it seems. That's my or something like that. My wife listens to that one as her pump-up song sometimes. Oh, my gosh. All right. There you go. Good. See, there you benefited from, from uh, secondhand listening. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good. Two out of two. Here you go for your third question. True or false? Men tend to have better dream recall than women. Is that true or false? I'm going to say false. You are right again. It is absolutely false. Women actually have better recall. Wow. Their dreams. Nailed it, dude. All right. All right. The gigging musician even gets it on the not my gig. See, there you go. <laughs> well, had a little help on question one. <laughs> we'll give it to you. We'll give it to you. All right, Jared. Hey, man, thanks so much for for uh, being here and uh, lending all of this business wisdom to uh, to my listeners. I know there's a lot of folks out here uh, who are listening who really appreciate that and are really looking for solutions to uh, to these to these issues. So awesome. thanks for being here, man. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening. If you want to stay in touch, please join the For the Greater Groove Facebook group. See ya. Groove on.